So first we'll look at uh, verses 12 through 14 here. It says, Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus, and they bound him. At this point, the, the, the other disciples, we learn from the other Gospels, that the other disciples had scattered at this point, and uh, so Jesus was there alone being bound up. Uh, but based on what we saw last week, can you picture that binding up of Jesus in the garden? You do it. No, you do it, right? I mean, these guys all just got knocked over. Probably nobody wanted to bind him up at this point, fearing the Lord. And I, I believe that Jesus had to encourage them to bind him up because it was the Roman law to be bound. So here they are, they bind him up. And then verse 13, it says, that, And brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. So who, I want to tell you that there, there, we're going to see three trials, uh, religious trials and three Civil trials are going to take place with Jesus. Don't worry, we're not going to see them all today. We're just going to look at the first one today. But there's three and three trials. And uh, this is the beginning of it, the first religious trials with Annas. Now, who is this guy? Who is Annas? Have you heard of him before? Right, he's the father-in-law of Caiaphas. But, you know, we only really read about him in the Gospel of John. He's not in the other Gospels. Let me tell you a little bit about him. He was the most powerful man in Israel, the Jewish man in Israel. He, he had served as the high priest for 10 years approximately. And see, when you were a high priest in Israel, that was an appointment for life, kind of like our Supreme Court justices. It was, a, it was an appointment for life. But the Roman, the Roman government didn't like having all that power in one man for so long. So whenever they saw him as a threat, they would take him off of his position as high priest and they'd make Israel elect another high priest to serve in his place. Okay, you kind of picturing that? Well, here's what Caiaphas does. He's, not, he's no dummy. He had five of his sons follow his footsteps. So he'd appoint one son as the high priest. He'd get him elected until the government made him change. And then he put his second son, third son, all the way to his fifth son. Now he's working his way through son-in-laws, right? He's got his son-in-law Caiaphas on there now. But what you see in Scripture is that he really was the position of power. They were more or less, I hate to say it, but they are more or less puppets to, to, to Annas. He was really controlling uh, the rule there. Now, just a little bit more about him is that uh, he, was a, he was known as a very ambitious, greedy man. And, and most of, of Israel despised him as the high priest. Now, one of his main sources of income was the courtyard uh, concessions, if you'd call them that. You know, when they'd come and, and, and sell the, the sacrificial animals and the money changers. Those were all under Annas's power. And here's why everybody despised him, is because he was robbing them. See, you, you, would, you would buy a little, bring a little lamb that was blemishless or, or, or doves or whatever, and his inspectors would always find something wrong with them. And he'd force you to buy from his people. And that's bad enough, but his markup, I had one historical note, his markup was 20 times the going rate. 20 times what you would pay for a, a lamb or a, a dove or whatever you had to buy. So he's basically robbing everybody. Do you see that? So he wasn't well liked in, uh, in the, in, by the Jewish people. Now, based on that, is there any reason you think he might have had a special hatred for Jesus? Yeah, yeah. I mean, come on. This, this is, yeah. Don't mess with my wallet, right? 
I mean, look at here. I'll just give, look up here for a second. Look at the scripture here. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip of cords and drove all the temp- drove them from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, "Get get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market." And we see that again recorded in Matthew of a different event. He did it twice. So you can imagine uh, Annas was not too fond of Jesus. Now, you also, what else is amazing to me is you think about that. When Jesus turned over those money tables, nothing's recorded about anybody coming at Jesus about that. Do you notice that? Of course, that's because he's a son of God, but it's also because the people were probably inside, at least, cheering. Because they knew he was a crook and greedy and taking advantage of the Jewish people. So, uh, so here he is, Jesus, before Annas, this man that had a special hatred for him, the most powerful man in, in, uh, in Israel. So you see the, the setting here. Now, you notice here, verse 14, I just don't want to pass over that. It says, Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Now, when you read that, I don't know about you, but the temptation is, wow, Caiaphas was a man of God, right? He knew what was going on, right? So that's the temptation reading that verse in this setting. But let's go back to where we were in chapter 11 for a minute. Just look up here for a second. In chapter 11, look, look at the setting of when he said this. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Do you see that? That's the setting of him saying it. So what was the problem? Do you see what the problem is? Jesus is giving sight to the blind. The lame are walking. People are being healed, and because of these great miracles, people are believing in Jesus. And that's what's upsetting the high priests. Do you catch that? That's what's upsetting them. And what are they worried about? They're worried about losing their place and their nation. Beloved, they're, they're worried about their money, their power, and their position. They don't want to lose it. They're, they're, they're living the good life, and they're worried they're going to lose it. And so, based on that, that's when Caiaphas says, don't you know it's better that one man die. So was he concerned about the Messiah? No, he's concerned about their position and possessions and power. But here's the thing we should know is that God did speak through the high priest at that time. That is how God revealed revelation. So he was actually speaking the word of God. But God also spoke through a donkey. He had no idea what he was saying. He really didn't. He was self-focused, God was revealing truth, and he had no clue. Okay, we're just getting the setting here. Everybody's still with me. It's kind of a setting. You're kind of picturing this going on, this this guy. Now let's go back to the disciples for a second, and then we'll have a fuller setting of what's going on in 15 through 18. So Simon Peter and another, another disciple were following Jesus. Now, they had already scattered, right? So, but Peter and John somehow hooked up, and they'd kind of, they're working their way around the back, kind of following these troops down the Mount of Olives. You picture that? They're following them back into Jerusalem. And, uh, but this is amazing here. Look at this in the next verses. Because this uh, disciple was known to the high priest, do you see that? He went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter 
had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty, and there Peter was let in. Now, it's interesting that, um, obviously, this is, by the way, this, everybody, most scholars believe this is John, because he doesn't name himself in the gospel. But John, obviously, everybody knew him at the most powerful man's, the high priest's house, they all knew John. He just walked right through the gates. No one even questioned him. He walked right in. Do you see that? Now, there's two possible reasons for that, both uh, probable. One is that his father had a very large fishing business. Uh, it was very large. He employed servants, which was unheard of. It also is noted in the historical books that he supplied salt fish, which was rare. Fresh water was more, more common, but he had salt fish. So he probably supplied fish to the wealthy families, including the high priest. So that he might have been known that way. The second main reason he might have walked in is on his mom's side, he's a descendant of the high priest. So he had, he had bloodline in, in the priesthood of, of Jerusalem. Probably both were important. But yeah, I just want you to picture this again. So he, he was known there. He just goes walking through the gates. Uh, this is the way I picture it. And this isn't in the Bible, but you've got to picture this. Him and, him and Peter talking, right? They're a little concerned. There's trouble on the horizon, right? So they're walking, they're talking. And John just walks through, and he keeps talking. Pete's hung up at the gate, right? I mean, doesn't that sound like in the text? So he has to go back and talk to the servant girl and say, hey, he's with me. Let him in. And then Pete gets in. But John kind of shows, it's just funny the way John explains it. And, and so he goes back and gets Pete, and Pete comes into the courtyard. But we see one thing that happens here in verse 17, that the, the, the girl that was standing at the gate says to him as Peter's walking through, says, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? And Peter denied it. He said, I am not. I do not know Jesus. Now, a couple things we see is that Peter is obviously covered in fear. Um, it, it wasn't illegal to be a disciple of Christ yet. So, so why wouldn't Peter agree that he was a disciple? Obviously, we know he didn't understand the full plan of God yet, not till Pentecost, but there's something going on with Peter I think part of it could have also been that he was entering the courtyard of Annas, whose servant he had just cut off his ear. By the way, that was illegal. He didn't go around cutting people's ears off. But for some reason, Peter's covered with fear. And did you notice this? Two. Two. You know, we always think Peter's always the bold one, right? He's the bold disciple. But isn't it interesting that all of them knew that John was a disciple? And this is, in, this is enemy's territory right here. This is the high priest of Israel. But they already knew that John was a disciple of Jesus. So he obviously had some boldness. So he said, well, you're a disciple too, and Peter denies it. Now, he continues, verse 18, it says, It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made. It was a coal fire to keep warm. Peter was also standing with them, warming himself. Can you picture this, Beloved. Who, who do you, well, let me ask you this. Who do you think was at this fire in the middle of the night? It's almost morning, warming themselves. The same people that just came to the garden to arrest them. These were the, these were the same people. These were the enemies of Christ, serving the high priest that came to arrest them. And Pete's just hanging out at the fire, warming up with them. I mean, just what a, what a, what a contrast going on. So he's there warming them and... Uh, 
and waiting for what would happen next. So, now this is neat because they're going to switch back and forth. Look up here for a second. Now at 19, there's camera one and camera two, if you will. Camera two is in the courtyard, and they go back and forth. Camera one is in the house with the high priest. So meanwhile, isn't that neat? I mean, it's just meanwhile. The high priest questions Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Now, we read this and don't fully understand it, but you have to realize that their laws were very similar to the laws we have now. And what, what's going on here is Annas is absolutely breaking the law. Now, if we're, if we're going to arrest someone, I could call him Stacy here, but I won't. But I, if we're going to arrest someone, what do we have to have before we arrest them? Yeah, probable cause, evidence, witnesses, right? We need some sort of a case before we can even arrest someone. But he, Annas brings Jesus in and just starts questioning him, which was illegal. They also had what we'd call the Fifth Amendment. You can't, you can't just start questioning someone that you think is guilty of something without them uh, being able to have defense. Now, um, so he starts questioning him, and this is what Jesus says in verse 20. He says, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where the, all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Are those who heard me sure, surely they know? Ask them, they surely know what I said. So he's basically flat out telling him he's breaking the law. I spoke in open. I spoke not in secret. They heard, and by the way, we know that, that uh, the high priest had sent their own people to hear these teachings. So here's the problem, beloved, is, is that they had been examining Jesus, and they desired to kill him, and they were just trying to figure out a way to do it. They had watched his, they'd listened to his words, and they found no fault in his word. They watched his miracles, they, no, they found no fault with his work. They watched his life and found no fault with his walk. Right? He was sinless. But they knew it was better to kill him because they were fearing the loss of their position, possessions, and power. So Jesus flat out tells uh, the high priest that he was breaking the law. And then what happens in verse 22? When Jesus said that one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded. See, because everybody in that room knew that he was breaking the law. And, and, and Annas is in a tough spot. He, you know, they, Most people don't like him as it is. Now he's breaking the law openly, and all the people that were in that room saw that. And we got, a, you know, we got what we call a little kiss-up going on here. The, the guy reaches over and slaps Jesus. So you, you know, look at me, I'm, I'm standing up for you, boss. <laughs> Because he's trying to cover for the complete humiliation he must have been experiencing, knowing that he had broken the law. And he's the high priest breaking the law. And so what does uh, Jesus say next after he gets slapped in the face? He said, if I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? So again, he boldly proclaims his innocence. And the illegal actions they're taking. And then what does Annas do? Look at verse 24. He sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. See, Annas was, was humiliated. He was defeated. He was embarrassed. He was stuck. Here's the application point for us that I want you to hear from this part of the text is that 
This is, this is the high priest of Israel. He probably knew the word of God better than anybody else. Right? He was a man that was raised with a great anticipation of the coming Messiah. Right? He, that's what he was raised with. And it was always elevated at the time of Passover. Maybe this is the time that the Messiah would come. And what I want you to see is how the temptations of the world can bring anybody down. The temptations of the world can get a hold of you and drag you away from your beliefs. Because I'm telling you, this guy really, if anybody should have recognized the Messiah, it should have been the high priest of Israel. He knew the word. He knew what was expected. But do you see what happened is, and it happened slowly, I'm sure, but it started off, you know, hey, we're making a decent profit in the temple concessions here. You know, there's nothing stopping us from increasing the prices, right? And you know what? Let's, and those inspectors need to be a little stricter on, on what we're letting in letting out. And greed started taking over his heart. He started to get greedy. And you know what? Then as he got this money, he started building palaces. And he became friends with Rome. And he started taking nice vacations to Rome and, and to different places. And, you know, his life was really, really good in the world's eyes. And so when the Messiah finally came, and the proof was undeniable, he chose to kill him versus give up his treasures of the world. See, and my beloved, that's what the world will do to all of us in different ways. It will deceive us slowly and drag us away from our Savior. Amen. The temptations of the world. Let me say one more thing. I pray that you will, we'll talk about this at the end, but examine yourselves because it's a slow process. Seek the Lord. Ask him what areas you have given over to the world. What idols have been built in your hearts? Because I'm telling you, beloved, it happens slowly. It starts off, if I could give you this imagery, it starts off as a rabbit's foot, but it ends up being a temple. A temple's built in your heart. It's unbelievable how it takes over. And guess what? You, it, it's slowly so you don't realize it. So, and don't try to figure it out. You have to go to God and say, God, reveal to me the idols in my life. What are the idols in there? I desire for you and you alone to be my king. Help me tear down those idols. Help identify the idols in my life. Okay. Meanwhile, we're back to camera two. Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself, so they asked him, You aren't one of the disciples too, are you? He denied it again, second time saying, I do not know Jesus. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man's who ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Look at this. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Which is obviously proof that these were the people that were there to arrest Jesus. And again, Peter denied it. At the moment, a rooster began to crow. Now we know, let me just show you this up here for a second. We've just got a few more texts to review. We'll be done here, but just look at this for a second. He not only denied it the third time, but he, he began to evoke a, a curse on himself. 
You see that? And a lot of people say that he was using foul language. He wasn't using foul language. It'd be something like saying, as God is my witness, I do not know Jesus Christ. I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, so help me God. I do not know Jesus Christ. That's the swearing he was doing. He was swearing an oath that he didn't know Christ. On the third time. Now let me just show you one other thing about it. And then we'll build an application from it. Look it up here for a second, 22.55. And he, when he kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Now, does this sound familiar to anybody out of the Scripture? Okay, look at Jesus. I mean, uh, Peter denied Jesus Christ as he walked into the courtyard. He stood with the enemies of Christ, and he was asked a second time, and he denied Christ. And then lastly, he sat down with the enemies of Christ and denied Christ. And the third time, he actually cursed, said a curse over himself about it. Anybody know what text that is? Psalm 1, absolutely. Psalm 1 is what we see being lived out in Peter's life. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Doesn't, and, and Peter knew that scripture, by the way. And that's exactly what he lived out. Now, in addition to temptation is slow and uh, deceptive, so is trials, when we go through trials in our life. And I just want to make sure we, we realize the importance of who we associate with, if we could talk about that for just a minute this morning. Um, look, look up here, another a verse to verify the truth or help support truth. It says, do not set foot on the path of the wicked or walk in the way of evildoers. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn from it and go on your way. Here's what I want you to hear this morning. is It's very important who we associate with, right? It's very important who we associate with. And uh, I know a lot of times we have a heart for going back to being with unsafe family, unsafe friends, unsafe girlfriends or boyfriends, and, and we think that we're strong enough to, to, to live in these different environments. But I'm telling you, the word's clear that we can't. We can't live in those kind of environments, and that they will win us over more than we'll win them over. Now, do we visit people? Do we bring the gospel to the lost? Absolutely. But I'm talking about intimate relationships with those people that don't know Christ. Does that make sense? Because I see it over and over, brothers, especially for my wayside brothers. I I see them being dragged down by going back to to situations and places they should not go back. Everybody remember Big Wayne? Yeah, a lot of you guys know Big Wayne. He's a wayside grad. I just got the blessing of being with him Friday night. And... uh, you know, he was a guy that was in Wayside, grew up in Aurora, and what he realized is that he needed to move to Rockford because, see, he had too many friends, so-called friends in Aurora, and, and too many people that were drilling, dealing drugs and doing drugs. So he said, you know what? He goes, Keith, I just can't stay clean in this environment. I need to move to Rockford. So he went, we got him into Rockford Rescue Mission. He graduated from there. Now he's living in a discipleship house. And we saw him with Jim and Sue at a, at a fundraising dinner for uh, biblical counseling, and, and you know what Mary and I said on the way home? He, he was just full of peace. He had peace. He, he had to leave that environment to, so that he could be strong. And I'm telling you, he, he looks great, solid. He's in a discipleship house, and he's doing very well. So sometimes we've got to make those hard choices of, of leaving those comfort zones, and uh, it includes family and friends sometimes. It's hard, but it's, it's necessary. A couple more verses. Look at this one. 
Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? This is used for marriages quite often, which is appropriate. It's appropriate, but it's also used in the marketplace for, for business partners or dear friends, best friends. You can't be partners with someone that is not equally yoked with Christ. I mean, how, how about this, beloved? I don't, I, I'm sure I get more testimonies. But when, when I was an unbeliever, I didn't know it, but I was living for Satan, right? You're serving one king or the other, little K, big K, right? Well, I was living for Satan. I didn't think that. But my, my world was evolved about the darkness. You know, where are we going to go and what are we going to do? What am I going to buy? I mean, all these things were all about the world. That was my agenda. And then I came to Christ, and thankfully my wife came to Christ at the same time. But my, my whole agenda, my life is all about the light. It's about Christ. It's about Him and His glory and His honor and His word and His way. And you know what? When I'm with someone that is still about the other king, the little K, I mean, how can they share ground together? What they want to talk about and who they serve are so different. It's so hard to, to, to be, to be uh, brought together. It's amazing. I just met with his brother Tom last week, who's a biblical counselor, and this is a verse that actually was God used to bring him to Christ. But the point is you can't be unequally yoked with good friends, spouses, girlfriends, whatever it is, um, or it'll bring you down. All right, let's move on. I'm going to skip this last one. Now look at this for a minute. But Peter, just same same uh, situation here. But Peter said, "Man, I do not know what you're talking about." And immediately, when he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And look what Luke records. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, "Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times." And he went out and wept bitterly. Can you picture that situation? I mean, they're, they're obviously leading Peter over to Caiaphas' house. God's timing is as awesome as what he does, right? To waste his family. Just as he says it, as he's speaking, the rooster crows, and then the Lord looks right into his eyes. You see that? And Peter remembered, it says, all the things the Lord had said to him about this. And he went out and wept bitterly. Is there any question that Peter loved the Lord? No. Did he not really truly desire to die for the Lord? Yes, he did. The Lord Jesus was his life. There's no doubt about that for Peter, is there, as we read the, as we, as we read the Gospels? But in this particular trial, he failed. He failed God. He failed him and he denied him. And we don't know the reasons exactly, but the reasons don't really matter. What matters is that he denied Christ in, in a difficult trial. But we also know the encouraging part is that Peter experiences godly sorrow. Do you see that? He experiences godly sorrow, which leads him to confession and repentance and reconciliation with God. What a, what a, what a contrast between him and Judas, right? Because Judas had sorrow too, but it was worldly sorrow. Do you know the difference? I mean, the difference is, is when you have godly sorrow, it's all vertical, it's all about your relationship with God that you're concerned about. You want that relationship back. You want to be back in fellowship with God. That's what godly sorrow is. Worldly sorrow is pretty straightforward. It's all horizontal. And guess what? It's mostly about us. 
It's mostly about what we lost and our, and our consequences and our relationships and our jobs and our, our, our. It's all about us. But, but you know, Judas had gotten the money and he was, had the, the power trip leading everybody up there. I mean, and he, when he got to the end of that, he realized there was nothing in that. So the sorrow was about the emptiness of the world's solutions to life. It's still worldly sorrow. But Peter had given up everything to follow Jesus. So his sorrow can't be worldly because he doesn't have anything attached to the world anymore. He walked away from it all to follow Jesus. So his sorrow was all vertical. He had let down his Lord and he wanted to be reconciled with him. It's so important we understand the differences. It's pretty simple. If you're having a a little uh, sorrow, time of sorrow, is it vertical or horizontal are the only questions you have to ask yourself. Now this rooster crows. I mean, I love this rooster crows and what it reveals. I mean, first we see the rooster crowed, and Jesus looked into his eyes. And what, did, what do you think Peter more fully realized at that moment? When the rooster crowed and he looked in Jesus' eyes, what do you think Peter more fully realized? That he's God. Amen, Gary. That he's God. Right? What did you say, Liam? Jesus was all-knowing. Yeah, that Jesus was God. I mean, he predicted this exact event, and then he's looking right at him. I mean... He more fully realized that he was God. I think also the rooster crow was a call to repentance, right? That rooster crowed, and it was a call for Peter to repent, to confess and repent and return to the Lord. But, beloved, don't miss this. We talk about the new hope in Christ. It was also the announcement of a new day, right? When a rooster crowed, it was a new day. The sun was rising, and it was the beginning of a new day. Now, I promise this is the last text. Look at this with me and we'll close in just a minute here. Oops, there we go. Look at this for a minute. It says, Simon, Simon, Satan is asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. Look at this. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But look at, you know, we know what Pete said. He said, he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, before the roaster... Rooster crows three times, you will deny me. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So, you know, when Peter is out there outside the courtyard weeping bitterly, confessing and repenting to Jesus, you know, you have to remember that this truth also came back to him. He, he knew that Jesus had prayed that your faith may not fail. And look at this. He prayed, and when, you're, when you turn back, when you repent, when you repent, Strengthen your brothers. Do you see that? At Peter's darkest moment, there was great light as he, re- as he reflected back on what Jesus had said. And God gave him hope. You know, you know I confess, we'll close with this, but I confess, I have, I have denied Jesus. I wish it was only three times. How about you? I've denied, I don't even know how many times I've denied Christ. I don't know how many times I've disappointed Christ, right? Anybody else? Yeah, okay, good. I thought I was alone here. (laughs) We all have, right? And we look at Peter, you know, he denied him three times. And after that, after Pentecost, he went on to live a victorious life for Christ, historically recording that he got crucified upside down. He lived it right after this point. But you see, you know, every time I failed, every time I've denied Christ, he calls me back. He calls us back, does he not? 
Every day is a new day. He continually invites us back into relationship with him. He desires that. That's our God. Yeah, amen. And, and what else is so true, let me tell you something. Peter was not ready to lead until he was broken. He was not ready to lead until he was broken. It was only after. He said, after you've repented and come back, then, by the way, Peter, I know you've thought you had this job all along, but after that, after you've done that, then you'll be ready to go back and strengthen your brothers. Up to this, it's all been flesh. Now it'll be out of a brokenness, not of your own strength. And I'll tell you this, in my own life, let me look at the Bible. Come on, you don't need my life. Joseph, David, Daniel, who, who did God not completely break before he put him into leadership? So, beloved, it is not out of our strength that we serve God. It is out of our brokenness we serve God. It's, it is only in our brokenness. Those are the kind of people he puts in leadership. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we just have to cry out to you and say thank you. I mean, we openly as a body just continually confess that we do disappoint you. We do deny you. And uh, we're so grateful that as we confess this and repent and turn back to you, that you accept us with open arms. Lord Jesus, I'm glad that you work through brokenness. I'm glad that it's not up to us and our strength, but it is up to you and your strength. And Lord, I pray for this body that that we would more fully understand this and and be broken vessels that we could be used more mightily for you, our King. Oh, Lord, we cry out to this in Jesus' name. Amen.